one. Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Andy, are you recording locally? Okay. But I don't know, I'm, my computer's like flipping out right now. Okay. Okay, now I am. Okay. Okay, that's fine. Um, we're in late September. We are just we're keeping the, that? Okay. We just passed the 10th anniversary of Occupy Wall Street, right? Um, the beginning that's of what it, we're going to yeah. talk about today. Sure. When was it? When was the 10th anniversary? Was it like three days ago or something like that? Well, we're, we're counting like the beginning of it, right? Because it lasted months. Well, the, yeah, yeah, that's another question I had. So when was the first, when did the first occupier set foot on the shores <laughs> of Zuccotti Park? <laughs> was it the 17th? I can't remember now. Yeah. No, the, it's my dad's birthday. People were talking about there was all this planning that went into I, you know, yeah. I, I caught wind of it after it had already begun. So I don't, okay. I don't know so, about the official beginning. Whatever it is, we it's celebrated its 10th anniversary this week, right? Um, so we're going to talk about that. Uh, but before we talk about that, Tammy and Andy, how are you doing? Tammy, you're back in New York. Back in Andy, New York. Andy, you're back, in back amidst your debate <laughs> files. <Yeah. laughs> back in school. Biopower yeah. 1NC, I can read in the background. Um, <laughs> people, people will think like I'm a huge Foucault head because of you. TNC, uh, Judith Butler. Yeah. <laughs> oh, really? Responses. <laughs> I bet you. I bet at some point in your life you did have a file of Judith Butler TNC responses, though, right? Mm, we definitely had a Judith Butler file. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's all I want to know. All right. Anyway, anyway <laughs> moving on. Tammy, Tammy, how are you doing? I'm doing good. It's really hot here. It's hot. It's September. Yeah. It's very uncomfortable. I think I got yeah. used, got soft again in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Temperature is always unpleasant in New York. Any shift of temperature, except for the five days where the temperature is perfect. But those five days feel much better than a normal day here where the temperature is the exact same. So, you know, it's one of those yeah, that's true. Uh, marshmallow test things. Um, Andy, how are you doing in Philly? Uh, I'm good. What's the marshmallow test? I don't think I'm using the right analogy. Yeah, isn't that the <laughs> one about pleasure? That's it's the one where they gave kids two marshmallows, <laughs> and if the kid and they told no, they gave a kid a marshmallow and they said, "If you wait, yeah, then we'll give you two marshmallows. But if you eat it now, you won't get oh, any marshmallows." Okay. So it was about like sort of gratification, and <laughs> then they found that the kids who waited ended up being more successful in life. And oh, another outcomes thing. Right. It's such bullshit, you know. <laughs> First of all, I bet half those kids didn't even want a second mash, uh, marshmallow. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> and secondly, I really, I don't know. I really disagree with the mentality of the kids who wait for the second marshmallow, you know. <laughs> if anything, they're just like more, they're just better suited to be like oppressed by the management class, right? Because they're just, they believe these like, silly promises on delayed gratification like if their boss was like hey just stick around for three more months and yeah. you know i can't yeah. promise anything but there might be in it for something for you and that person will just keep on working a terrible job based off some random promise you know, you know? success <laughs> is that success i mean that's yeah oh man i thought that was about me crazy i thought you were gonna say they were better capitalists because rather than spending they were <clears> for <throat> their investment to double 
by doing oh. yeah. and, and they're teaching them that lesson. Um, that's funny. I think like that's the part that's how, that's of how the I talents. Think about things, I guess. But you know, my thing is just like you never know when the ceiling tile is going to fall <laughs> while you're sitting in the room and take you out before the second marshmallow gets there. So you might as well just eat the first marshmallow. Like, who marshmallows cares about are gross. That's the other thing. Who wants yeah. two marshmallows? <laughs> it's the worst kind of sweet. Oh, no. I went camping with my kid recently, and we did the marshmallow fire thing. Just terrible experience all, all around. Do you a um, terrible experience. Do you let them catch on fire? Yeah. No. What? That's I kind of like the burnt flavor. Yeah, I do. Think I know. I've been the only told good thing about it. I mean, it's cancerous yeah. or something, but. <laughs> well, yeah, it's definitely not cancer. I mean, maybe it is if you ate like 70 <laughs> yeah. burnt marshmallows. 20 bags of burnt marshmallows. <laughs> but if you did that, I, I think that any amount of burnt marshmallows that you ate would kill you from diabetes before it killed you from, <laughs> it's true. from the from cancer. <laughs> but anyway, my point being that. Marshmallows are disgusting, first of all. And secondly, um, <laughs> I don't know. What a weird thing to test. And then it became totally ubiquitous. Like it's cited as a thing all the time. These Every six months, everyone on so Twitter dumb. talks about it. What? I know. I, I hate all of those social psych, behavioral psych, oh my God, parable-like things. They're so I bad. Know. I have this like quiet take that psychology is like, you know, just astrology. <laughs> Certainly behavioral, yeah. Certainly, yeah. I don't believe any of it. I'm just like, oh wow, that kid ate two. You like maybe the kid was hungry that day. Like, what are you doing? You know, (laughs) and also who cares, right? Like, it's it's like you can you can basically make any sort of correlation, right? Yeah. And say these kids are more successful. These kids are less successful. Definitely. You know, and um. Anyway, did you you all ever read like Carol Gilligan type stuff? No, I'm talking about who's that? Yeah, the feminine voice. Yeah, a different voice. She was, it was like a similar thing where yeah, they, I forget what the experiment was, but they took basically, uh, you know, girls and boys and noted that women have this inherent trait to like help out more and were more supportive. And she mm-hmm. was trying to build a whole school of feminism on this. We, were, we read this in like college and I was like, okay, whatever. And then I read it years later. I was like, this is outrageously like offensive, <laughs> like very bad, like 1970s <laughs> essentialist feminist you know, like reinforcing it was a little bit. Yeah. Kind of we stuff, learned it yeah. actually in law school though. I, in, in one way it was useful, which is like, it was supposed to valorize different forms of speech, not necessarily saying it's just like belonging to women biologically, yeah. but that there are different ways of expressing oneself right. that should be interpreted as authoritative, even if they're not like hyper-masculine. So they're trying Got to rescue it. it. You felt like did you well, feel- I mean, I think that's like an in- I think that's like a helpful insight to some people. But yeah, if we go to like biofem with it, then it's bad. What's biofem? I don't know. I'm just thinking. It's I'm like just bio- saying, like if you if you say yeah, if you basically oh, say like no. women's speech is this way. If you have a vagina, you talk like this. Like right. that's bad. But I think introducing there- this idea of different kinds of authority in speech is helpful. Yeah. Anyway, that was like a psychology thing from the <laughs> 70s. Where yeah. They put totally. like girls and boys in different rooms and saw how they acted differently. Yeah. Have you read that uh, Richard Thaler book, uh, Miss Spent or whatever it's called, the behavioral economic book? Oh, no. That's another one where that I'm just awful. like, this stuff is just so obvious, you know? <laughs> I don't know. I feel this. there's a whole genre of this stuff, you know, that, that I can't yeah. handle. Like, I remember when I was working at Unnamed Publication that we would publish all this stuff that was like, 
hey, uh, why do you do X? You know, and it was all stuff like, why do you have a sugar craving in the morning when you know it's bad for you? You know, yeah, and just yeah. like, and then it would just kind of <laughs> quiet. It would kind of dip a toe into brain science stuff, you know. Yeah. But it would mostly be psychology about urges and stuff. People eat that shit up, yeah. you know. And I don't know. I think it should be banned. <laughs> I know last week we said we should not ban any scientists, <laughs> but I'm making an exception <laughs> for anything about like psychology. behavioral psychology stuff is out. Like I just don't, like first of all, we need to rescue media from this. You know, like mm-hmm. we can't just have these people have like you know like it's like ninety percent of TED talks too, right? Nine like yeah. these people just like make this huge living. We just can't do it. You can't incentivize people to be this way. You know, like why well, do, why doesn't why, you know, why don't investigative journalists, I, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not saying like, we need to elevate people who are, you know, do amazing work, but are probably really boring to the majority of the public. You know? <laughs> right. We don't have to do that, but we should at least clean this mess up that we created, you know, because it's ridiculous. The gimmick you know? factory. I think it's, right. yeah, I think a lot of that stuff was a response to the critique of economics that not all people are the same. So they responded to it by creating all these free economic studies that are still focused on individual behavior as opposed right. to like class That's and oppression, you know? Yeah. And um, they're all based on like, basically like, how do you deal with like a wine of the month club? You know, Do you guys remember the New York times magazine article about, uh, is it Amy or, uh, Amy Cuddy, the Harvard psychologist who did like the power pose thing? No, and how the, it was absolute bullshit. What's that? Like you make a power pose. Yeah, and and you. and you exactly, and you get stronger and more confident. Susan yeah. Dominus wrote a story about her. That yeah, I kind of believe that. It was very funny. A power okay. pose, like you kind of believe it. Yeah. Yeah. Putting I hands believe, hands literally, the pose. worst kind of behavioral psychology. Um, I believe that more. I believe that there are positionings of the body that lead to better confidence and uh like you know, yoga but not like, like yeah what's the difference between a power because pose and yoga is... it's just a form of yoga i mean i don't <laughs> this is like yoga on a ted talk but okay. only one position i'm still into it all right so our, we've concluded the three of us together that we will ban all psychology <laughs> except for power pose right which we can keep <laughs> Uh, or at least until I read the article. Sue wrote it. I, I, I'm surprised. I usually it's read pretty it. good. It's pretty I usually good. read most of her work because I yeah. find her to be a fantastic magazine writer. Um, you know, she's, I don't know. She's great. Um, okay. Should we talk about Occupy's 10th? Yeah. 10th anniversary. Okay. So Occupy 10th anniversary just happened, as we said. There's a lot written about this 10th anniversary. I think, I don't know, it's this interesting time right now for the people who went to Occupy or the people who would be interested in Occupy, um, especially when it comes to like utterances online in social media spaces, because I don't know if it feels this way to you, but like, I think that a lot of the energy around online energy around Bernie has like gone somewhere else and I don't know where it's gone, right? Like people don't necessarily seem to want to keep, hold Biden to account for stuff, right? Like, I don't know, like today, there are images of like the border patrol on horseback, like whipping Haitian, uh, Haitian. Oh. Did you see that stuff? Oh my God. Um, now I don't know if that's partially because outside of immigration that, you know, there's a lot to like about some of the stuff that Biden has done, including yeah. actions in Afghanistan. Right. And so maybe people just don't know what to say. Right. Um, 
But at the same time, it also just feels like, uh, I don't know, you know, like, where's all this energy right now? And so it's an interesting time, at least for me to see a lot of stuff in uh, about Occupy, because I was wondering how nostalgic it would feel, you know, like how backwards mm-hmm. looking would it feel? How much would it be like, well, we were like this, but now we're like this, you know, um, because I don't think that that would have been true, say, two years ago, right, during the campaign. Do you like I think that they would have been like Occupy is still going on, right? Um, it has just found its energy in the Bernie movement. So I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, that makes sense. Wait, Jay, were you in New York? Did you go to Occupy? No, I wasn't living in New York. Okay. I was in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Did you go to was there an Occupy in the Bay? Wait, no, was I in San Francisco? What was ten years ago? Two thousand eleven? No, yeah. I was in LA. <laughs> There were no, a couple. There was LA. There was LA huh? Occupy. There were a couple LA Occupy sites. I, as I, I think there were. I didn't go. Yeah. Did yeah. you guys go? We went. Yeah. We were in New York. Yeah. I say we. We didn't know each other, but yeah. I think Tammy <laughs> was more involved. I went down a few times. Okay, so let's do story time then. Tell me, <laughs> tell me about your Occupy journey. You start, Andy. Uh, mine is very brief. I was a grad student. You know miles away in uptown and so um we followed it we went down a few times there was a big one of these big marches where a bunch of us went down and like it just felt like the whole city was up there um yeah we went down so we went down a few times it was interesting because i think in my mind you know but in the 2010s were really characterized by this infighting between the left and the centrist i guess especially with 2016 um, I really feel like tw- Occupy was like the beginning of that because in the 2000s, there wasn't a lot of that uh, because Bush was president and there's no infighting when right. everyone just is against yeah. the war. So 2011 was the moment when I remember seeing a lot of people who I thought would like Occupy, not like Occupy. And I thought like, hmm. oh, that's interesting, you know. <laughs> um, but I, and then I actually, I left um, to do research overseas soon after that. And something else we could talk about is I remember I was in India and we, we just kept talking about it in, from India and there were Occupy um, attempts to do like Occupy this or that in different Indian yeah. universities. So there was a, there, the whole world was watching and, uh, you know, at least, yeah. Yeah. you know, the sort of academic po- activist class of the world was watching. Right. Yeah. Sure. But it sounds like Tammy was probably more involved at the grassroots mm-hmm. level. I don't know. I, I went a lot because I worked around, I was in legal services then and we worked around the corner. We were just a few blocks away. So we would go down and a lot of people like activist groups that I knew through like workers' rights stuff and they were down there anyway. And so for me, it was kind of this great thing because I didn't really plan to get involved, but I was just so pulled in by the energy. And it was really cool to see how groups working on really different issues were all sort of they wanted a piece of this kind of unifying ideology, whatever it was. You know, we didn't even know what it was, but this kind of emergent thinking around there's the rich people and then there's the rest of us. And what does that mean, you know, for if you're a worker or if you're in debt or whatever? Yeah. Um, so I, to me, that was like really incredible. And I think it also showed a lot of people like what it meant to be policed and surveilled. Like a lot of people had their kind of first encounter with like, you know, mass movement organizing and mutual aid, like terms we use now. And then also like seeing what the cops would do mm-hmm. to people at Occupy, you know, it kind of, yeah. I think internalized that for people who, um, you know, haven't been homeless themselves, for instance, or like been policed on the streets. Right. Um, and then after Occupy, I think like my working group, like 
we, you know, there were different working groups who work on different issues. I think we met every week for like a year or maybe more. Oh, wow. So there was a long tail. Are you still in contact with the people? Yeah, I am. A lot of them are friends and I see them around and organizing spaces and stuff. So that, so there are these like wonderful, like legacies. I'm not saying Occupy was perfect and it like solved everything or like even created all the stuff we attributed to it. I think we're still figuring that out, but I think there are long tails for sure. And I think to your point, Jay, like I, yeah, it's interesting what you're, what you're observing that you don't see a lot of the kind of like Bernie socialist activity online right now in a unified way. And I don't know if that's because under Biden, like without a sort of like electoral or like single movement expression, for people to latch on to people yeah. are just like in their kind of issue areas right now or what's going on, but it does feel a little bit quiet. Well, okay. I, I, I'll, I'll explain a little bit more. So for example, I can, I think that there's some capitulation going on. Right. And I, th- and, in, and th- I'm only talking about online here, right. In the online mm-hmm. space. And okay. um, so for example, in housing, right. Mm-hmm. Like I think that some of the more Yimby type people have made, housing justice conversation so unpleasant for people that like housing activism, for example, has moved online. At least the consensus has moved away from sort of anti-gentrification conversations, right. Or anti-homelessness uh, to, to build more conversations, right. Now you can feel however you want about that. You know, like I think that I, I think my opinions on this are somewhat clear, which is just that, well, you can do both, but you should definitely, you know, protect tenants and you should probably build more middle-class housing in a lot of these cities. And, you know, if it's just housing for rich people, then the idea that that's going to trickle down, then we should probably rethink that in some ways, right? Given the time horizon that we have. But I do think that, um, I don't know. I I think that like that, that era where everybody was sort of rallying behind Bernie and, you know, being Bernie bros or whatever, right? Like however you want to divine it. I don't know. It's not, that energy does seem gone to me. And I don't know where it went. I have this metric in my head, which I call, I'm not going to say her name on our podcast, but you know that, like, uh, you know that, uh, that woman in Australia who everyone on the left is always mad at because she tweets like crazy stuff. Is this. Ter- oh, yeah. Ter- yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. You said it. I just Andy, we're not going to. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. my I metric. I really on, understand who she I'm is. I'm not sure she's but... real. I'll be I, I don't think she's, yeah. I don't think she's real okay. either. But my metric yeah. on how healthy the left is, is how much it's like the inverse of how much they talk about <laughs> that person. Yeah. Right. So when like everyone's always bad, oh, no. I'll just say it. When everyone's always bad at Amy Therese, you yeah. know, and I see her retreat, then like something very bad is going on. Or nobody <laughs> has anything to talk about. Oh my God. And so man, funny. I see her all the time right now, you know, so in terms oh, of my inverse AV Ther- Oh yeah. My inverse AV Therese feeder. It's like, um, uh, Andy, we follow different types of people. But if I, no, yeah. I, I used to see her, but if I block, because I think I blocked her. If I block her, does that mean I don't see her? Yeah, you probably won't see her then. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> but see, if I blocked her, I couldn't, I couldn't, I would not be able yeah, to update my, my invasive. Yeah, my, my, uh, it would be like, <laughs> my, my needle would be all off. <laughs> anyway, so my, my point is only that, like, um, I don't know, but that's not the important part, right? Like the important, we're talking about Occupy and like, I don't actually think, I actually think that the legacy of it is not particularly complicated. You know, it is the Bernie movement. It is a real thinking about class. All of those things are good, you know, 
I think that people's general, I think, Tammy, I think what you said was actually very great and relevant, which is that like, um, and it has to do with, you know, like some of the work that a lot of people are doing about what happens when the public sees images of police brutalizing people in any, in any form, right? Like they can think that Occupy is the dumbest thing in the world. When cops start (laughs) brutalizing people on camera and people watch it, it has a massive negative effect. You know, this is the stuff that like Omar Wasow, um, you know, studies. And I don't think that's really debatable, right? Like the, if you want, and it goes all the way back to the civil rights movement, right? Like um, there were planned actions to have the, to see if the police would attack people, right? To be on television because they knew how powerful those images were. Like that's just explicitly said. And uh, I think in that sense, it really did kind of start a lot of the conversation about police brutality as well. Right. Um, yeah. Not that the people at Occupy are usually the recipients of police brutality. Right. Like, but, yeah. you know, anytime a cop does that, people really pay attention, um, especially when it's like so egregious. So, yeah, um, I do I, think that's another legacy. of it. I, I've, I recall that the encampments went on actually for way longer than I thought they would initially. Yeah. Right? Like, and there were like def, there were def, there were several stages where it seemed like the city was going to crack down and they, then they didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was actually, I left thinking I was very surprised at how long it lasted. Mm-hmm. I, it was like into the winter, right? Like into December. Yeah. Um, th- yeah. And just thinking about like the legacy and all that, I do think, you know, you're right. There's, you can draw a line from Occupy to the subsequent, uh, movements or moments like Black Lives Matter, Bernie, more recently abolitionism. It does seem like what um, I, maybe like younger listeners who also weren't like that politically active at the time might not be aware of. It really did start off as, for better or for worse, very much a, a movement centered on like finance in New York City mm-hmm. um, and an anger over the bailout and the 2008 crisis. Definitely. Which is why I think it had this character of being kind of elitist anyway, right? It was very mm. much like talking about one or two sort of like centers of, of financial power in the world. <laughs> and um, like people who read Graeber. Yeah. Well, so that's <laughs> like the other David thing. Right? Graeber was like really the, involved. <laughs> the, the intellectual people, yeah. you know, there's this, the nation wrote this, had this kind of uh, opinion thing um, about like, was it an anarchist or a socialist movement? Mm-hmm. You could say it had a big impact on the socialist movement. But intellectually, strictly speaking, it was anarchist, right? It was David yeah. Graeber and the Ad right. Busters people yeah. who borrow a lot from like socialist criticisms of capitalism, but their basic politics are much more, much less about like organization and hierarchy and so on. Right. Or state yeah. power. Like, right. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. Nat- like, not, it's not like let's nationalize right. Walgreens, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's do small pharmaceutical mutual aid societies yeah i don't mean to i'm not i'm I'm not slandering the anarchists here i would say of the three of us the one with by far the most anarcho tendencies is mace i'm not i'm not slandering definitely Uh, but i do yeah so i do think and so i you know i was you know tammy and i were kind of like trading these like pieces from the time before uh before before the show and i do and i was also like actually looking at my photos from the from the events and kind of like jogging my memory in New York City, the movement was very diverse, but I think it was also, I, I do remember this feeling at the time that it felt, if not like physically white, but like like mm-hmm. white, white or like race blind, <laughs> you know, colorblind in its yeah. in its language. Um, and I don't want to say like that 
that doomed the project or that you couldn't build on the, the on on the project. I guess looking back, it was a lot more. Um, you know, it, it didn't develop all these stages that we've had now of like mm-hmm. the race dimension, um, the and then the question of police, and then this question of you know, and so on and so. On. It was very much just about like yeah. we're really angry about but this that, bailout. You know, that critique was there. Yeah, about, yeah, exactly. About like race and occupy. I mean, right. it was like it seemed to be half of the conversation, at least from my vantage point. And they, beca- I think, it became them. yeah, it there became was a lot big. Because like, uh, especially on the criticism part, right? right. So like, I and mean, it's not, and the media was not kind to occupy. I think no. that's very clear. <laughs> that was but another. Like, you know, yeah, half of it was basically just like these people have the dumbest things. They just like snap and clap a bunch and they do these like ridiculous <laughs> yeah. dances, you know, and they're trying to build a new society, but man, what a stupid society. So that was half of it. You know? <laughs> yeah. That was a definitely like a, a very like early red pill. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that was a very Questions early like... remain about the long-term uh, <laughs> pragmatism of some of Occupy's more famed, uh, whatever, communication techniques. And then you like hear like, you know, in the back, I'm doing an NPR piece here, you know? Like, the people's mic. Uh-oh. Right, right, right. <laughs> Is, was that a thing? It was bad. Yeah. <laughs> the people's mic. The people's mic. The, the rock should have the sued. The rock should have time. sued. Um, <laughs> The Rock should have sued Occupy. You know? <laughs> like, I am the people's champ and this is the people's elbow. How dare you? <laughs> that would have been amazing. Um, but the other part of the criticism outside of like, oh, look at these silly kids, which, you know, I felt like was unfair, um, was was this question about, hey, it's just a bunch of rich white kids, right? Tammy, did you feel that yeah. as a non as a non-white, non-rich kid um, at 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 Occupy? I felt that I felt that that was unfair and that it got it kind of ran away with itself. In other words, like it just, it was a critique that was often leveled by people who weren't necessarily super engaged and it kind of reproduced itself as like a deterrent. And I found that at the time really frustrating. I think at the time I wrote like just a short piece about that because we were organizing a lot of immigrants into the movement and like it actually felt very diverse in a lot of those spaces. And so, um, Yeah, I I mean, of course, there were like debates around feminism and racial justice and stuff like within people's particular working groups and, you know, physical parts of Occupy, but it just seemed to be written off pretty easily by people. When you were there, or when I was there, it felt, it felt like pretty great. And and it did feel diverse because New York City is diverse. Um, And it did feel like the the commentary online was unfair. Especially yeah. if you felt like, well, this person wasn't there, you know. Um, Did it differ meaningfully, either of you, from the crit- criticisms of the Bernie bros? <laughs> In what sense? What do you mean? Well, that was also the criticism of the Bernie bros. I still remember this. Yeah, like, I mean, I think this was like a rehearsal for what, okay. 2016, basically, in a lot it of ways. It did kind of feel like that. Because like 2016, I remember, do you remember that when Bernie spoke in Seattle mm-hmm. and then to women yeah. who like said they were from very Black early Lives matter on, yeah. went yeah. and then it like was actually really under dispute whether or not like, first of all like the idea like we're from black lives matter right. it's not a thing you right. know like it wasn't an organization back then it's a little more of an organization now but the parts of it that are more of an organization seem to actually be kind of 
not great. You know, <laughs> like those are the ones that yeah. are always like, kind of like, wow, it's someone bought their fifth house, you know, like, okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> happy, happy for that person, you know, and on a personal level, but like, what are we doing here? You know, but, um, <laughs> That actually is my real response to it. Just like, sure, great. You know, I'm glad that you're, I'm glad it's you that's buying five houses and not somebody else, you know, but at the same time, what are we doing here? You know? yeah. So like yeah. the, um, uh, anyway, that, that moment yeah, happens. That yeah. That really crystallized, every, you know, that crystallized yeah. that critique of it because yeah. like they got in front of Bernie, um, which I think is totally legitimate. You know, he's a public figure. He's a, politician like if somebody wants to disrupt him then sure. that person should be able to disrupt him um but you know whatever that's just my general free speech beliefs but um you know it was just like this is a white movement um and then it turned out i think one of them was like somehow affiliated with the hillary campaign or something like that right no i think one of them was like republican like oh. straight up conservative oh, really? and they that started a whole new series that was really sort of picked up by the mainstream media at the time right, that uh, Bernie was out of touch, right, that Hillary was the one that understood black people. Hillary's campaign in 2016, if you remember, started at a black church in Harlem, right? That's right. And it was all this Robbie Mook strategy at the time of like being like, if we can with if we can hold like some percentage of Obama's gains right. with black voters and we'll win, right? Yeah. And so that was the strategy. And so when Bernie comes along, it's very obvious what they're going to do. They're just, because they have to still hold that yeah. They're terrified that Bernie is going to win that percentage off of them and then perhaps win the primary or at least dissuade those voters from voting for Hillary. Mm -hmm. And so then it turns in this whole thing. Yeah. But do you think that was that a similar vibe to what was happening in 2011? I mean, I think you correctly identify the analogy in terms of like the media kind of like creating and then reproducing a logic. I would say like with the Bernie bro thing, I mean, I would always say like, I'm a Bernie bro, you know, like I feel like there were a lot of... <laughs> women and women of color who are like, we're Bernie bros too. Like, this is ridiculous. But also I think there are, there were a lot of jerky Bernie supporters who did oh, harass sure. women online. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, so, yeah. so in that case, I felt like in a way that, that cr the critique of the sexism in that movement seemed to me more warranted than actually the kind of identity based critiques of Occupy, which, and also just because Occupy was so like anarchistic in its structure, yeah. you know, and deliberately so. And, um, that it just, it seemed a little bit like Yeah, I think, I think a lot of that Bernie stuff later on is of its own moment. Um, mm -hmm. I think the best way to understand, well, the, a good way to understand Occupy is to, again, to compare it to what came before, which is there was a broadly anti-war sentiment, but to like name capitalism or the economic system felt, to me, it felt more radical and more on point than what was happening in the previous decade. And then beyond that, you know, you would always, you know, just being like from the Pacific Northwest and being in debate, you can encounter like hippies all the time. So that's like, whatever. You take that for granted, right? Oh, oh, But Occupy, it did feel like it was expanding what beyond. What did you encounter in debate? I, like, I know, like in uniformly, uniformly uh, encountered like kind of like. The debate judges are all like former debaters who are in their 20s and right. 30s. Right, and it's like guys who don't look great. Pre-hipster. Not in terms yeah. of like the way in which they are, their bone structure is, but they just look like they've been living hard. You know? Not actual hippies. They like they read a lot of Chomsky and mm -hmm. drink right. Olympia beer. Well, anyway, yeah. so like whatever, yeah. I was I was familiar with, or like you know the sort of 
there's a lot of hippies in debate, right? And so that like that world is like you just get used to thinking that world is like marginal, right? But like with Occupy, I felt like this was actually breaking through to the usual suspects mm-hmm. and a lot of people who are just like your classmates. Um, oh yeah, your classmates sure. in school who are like who have never been very politically, particularly political in the entire time you've known them, are also excited about this and they feel for the first time they can um, kind of actualize or re- realize their opinions about. Yeah. about and right. So it did feel yeah. like, it did feel like it was expanding the universe of left politics in my, in my own personal experience in a way that was much broader than the previous era. And then, like I said, it also brought out a lot of animosity um, from, you know, probably people who more aligned with like corporate centrist media um, it brought that out from people who you just kind of thought were vaguely on the same side, like, oh, we're all anti-Bush, we all hate Bush, mm-hmm. you know? But then the splits would happen when it comes to, like, but then how do you actually feel about, like, capitalism, <laughs> you know? Right. And, then, yeah. and, and, then, and then some people are, like, stupid hippies with no plan, you know, versus... Do you think uh, that's gone? Do you think that that distinction is now gone? I think it's still there, but I will... fading, like, I, you know, that sort of useful... The useful distinction that people can make between being, say, like a progressive who, you know, thinks that there should be more diversity in places and there should be um, and that, uh, you know, Trump was bad and that um, maybe even go as far as saying, like, we should have universal health care. And then somebody who, like, identifies very much with, like, constant critique of capitalism. I think the line, I don't know if Overton Window is the correct word, the line has been completely moved in the direction where if you write for like the nation, I know like an, a writer for the nation was very opposed to Occupy at the time. Um, Cause we're like Facebook friends, but like, I think uh, if you're at the nation now, you have to be like pro Bernie. pro. <laughs> that's you know, true. That's true. All, all that stuff. Pro that's universal health care. That's very smart. In yeah. a way that in 2011. Um, yeah. It was very minoritarian. I think, I feel like it felt if you were, if you had any, basically if you had like a decent job it felt like you're stepping out of line by by publicly supporting occupy and then now it's become much more mainstream hmm. and i think we take it for granted um yeah. right if one it was right. fast it would be very different like right at the and i'm sure that at the time there would have been consequences for people for being associated with it who were in those types of positions whereas like now every wall street trading firm probably is made up of some percentage of bernie bros yeah right? definitely right, so, that's interesting um, the worst Bernie bros. Oh, God. That's like, those are the true Bernie bros that we really excise from the movement. You don't have to excise them. You know, no, just, I know. You know, yeah. And it can be. No, sorry, go on. I was just going to say, I went to a bar in Greenpoint recently and there were just a bunch of bankers. But I bet a lot of them voted It was for very Bernie. depressing to me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when when they were younger. Take a poll. Yeah, listen, I'm only doing it for this for ten years, and then I'm gonna start. A, <laughs> exactly. I'm gonna start a magazine. You know? <laughs> oh yeah, that's another legacy of Occupy. A lot okay. of left publishing came out. Right, of that. right. I'm gonna get to that in a second. I promise. I've structured this in a way. Question okay. two. Okay, <laughs> that was so only one question. Yeah, that was topic one. Topic two. Doug Henwood, uh, who I don't know, I very much, I admire. Um, I. Have you heard? Did you hear Doug Henwood on the on the dig? No, with Dan okay. Denver. He oh. he crossed over. He was on the dig as a guest. As okay. a guest about what? Great. 
I think they were just talking Someone. about his new his life or something. Yeah, it's good. It was interesting. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Doug Henwood wrote a piece for, about for Jacobin about the legacy of Occupy, and he noted something that I th- want to talk about quite a bit, right? And it's about it was this reminder that like when Adbusters came out and said, "Let's do this," right? Adbusters being the magazine Canadian. based in Canada. Vancouver, right? I think. And that was sort of the impetus for all this. Mm-hmm. Their argument was that we should emulate Arab Spring, right? Right. And that part, I think, is really interesting because I Definitely. think aside from thinking about the legacy of Occupy, we should also think about the legacy of this idea that happened during Arab Spring that the potential of the internet was not to like have people make money. It wasn't a way for like people to keep up with one another, that it wasn't like, you know, a way to share photos of the party that you went to or the beach that you went to last weekend, but rather was like political. Right. And so Arab Spring obviously launched 10,000 think pieces, all of which were, you know, it's good to write think pieces about something like Arab Spring because it was so shocking at the time. Right. It was incredible. That the idea that like there could be these spontaneous revolutions that take place, right, mm-hmm. because of the power of social media and networking and that like everybody could get there at the same time and show up. I don't know. How do we think about that now? Because it, when <laughs> Occupy started, that was basically like I don't care how you felt about Occupy, like you were quaking if you're in an establishment power from what had happened during Arab Spring, right? And the tech companies out here in the Bay Area were basically doing like a victory lap. I mean, nothing nothing secured their reputation more than that, you know? Because before people were like, it's just a waste of time. Why do you want to do this, you know? I don't care. You just like put on your Facebook wall, going to get boba, like who gives a shit, you know? Like that was like <laughs> the discourse around, it really was, it was discourse around. It, I remember some of my roommates at the time worked at Facebook and I was like, this is the dumbest shit ever. You know, like, I don't, I like, I'm your roommate. I don't care what you're doing. You know, like, why would I, and I definitely don't care if I'm not in the same space as you, you know, if I'm like visited by parrots and then I'm just like, Oh wow, this person's anyway, whatever that ratchets <laughs> the whole social media thing to a next level. Right. Yeah. I think we should just talk about like, you know, like, well, do we still believe this? Do you still believe that like spontaneous political change can happen because of the networked power of the internet and social media? Tammy Kim. I know. This is so hard. I was One of our that, listeners told me that I, I should God. do the entire show as, as McLaughlin. And then he volunteered oh to come on and be McLaughlin. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Tammy Kim, what do you think? That's Occupy hilarious. Wall Street, Arab Spring, you know, good or bad thing. And will we see more? Jeff Buchanan. Um, it reminds me of um, the newscaster on BoJack Horseman. Anyway, um, Keith, I Keith think, never yeah, seen that show. It's um, an incredible show. Um, okay. So I certainly felt that way at that time, like that moment of hope. And I think like Zainab Tufechi, I think later wrote a book about this Twitter and tear gas or something. Oh, um, she did. Yeah. Assessing oh. this. And I think, if I remember correctly, basically the book is equivocal, you know, it's like, yes, there were these catalyzing moments that social media took a part, took part in. Um, but can we rely on them to like actually maintain people's connections to one another to foster these movements? Like probably not, you know, and also of course, Arab spring collapsed so quickly. And so what are the lessons from that? I don't, you know, I think we don't even know exactly how to feel about that still, but disappointment is still so strong, but, um, 
Yeah. So I think like definitely do not feel hopeful about social media being a very useful in like political organizing right now. Um, and I think well, that's because of a, a decade of observation in which, yes, I think it's good for circulating ideas and sharing among um, certain parts of the population, especially like what pretty well educated elites. And I think like I learn a lot from it and I'm generally glad to be on it. Um, I don't think it's particularly useful in doing more than drawing people to spontaneous protests, but I don't think that necessarily, yeah, exactly. But I don't think that necessarily plugs people into movements or like actually catalyzes sustained organizing campaigns. That makes I know, sense. I know. This is sort of the flash mob theory about exactly. social justice, yeah. right? That it really right. what it is is that it can create flash mobs, and that and that's useful sometimes. Like it is you useful. want that, right? Right. But right. also, then what? <laughs> yeah. Right, but that in terms of imbuing people with an idea yeah. of why they're there outside of the sense of injustice that they feel over having seen a video, right? Yeah. That's difficult. Totally. And, you know, that's uh, and especially if you're trying to get the people to do anything right, then that's difficult as well. Um, I don't know. You know, we're going to come up in a few years on the 10th anniversary of Mike Brown being murdered by Darren Wilson, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I think that a lot that those that these questions will probably be most relevant then as opposed to Occupy, because it's you're talking about many years of protests, you're talking about millions and millions of people, you're talking a much broader swath of the society than was true with Occupy. And not everyone had a smartphone then. Right, right. 2011. I think I got a smartphone like 2016. I didn't have a smartphone then either. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I think I had one, but there weren't very many people in my office who had one. Wait, did I have one? I had a Blackberry. I think. Yeah, I think that's, I that's a not a smartphone. I know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the only reason why I know I had a Blackberry is because me and uh, my friend Rafe would send BBMs <laughs> to each other in the office. Apparently. You would send what? <laughs> you know, Blackberry Messenger. <laughs> Black- oh, no, I didn't yeah, even know what Bla- that is. Blackberry, like its had, Blackberry had its own proprietary like messenger that's system. Hilarious. Yeah, and we would send BBMs to each other. <laughs> um, and then <laughs> Grant offices in 2011. <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah i think i kept that thing for a while and then i find because i was just like i can't type on this stupid thing you know <laughs> anyway um you're right people didn't have storing phones really in 2011 and if they had right if it wasn't about sitting at your computer and seeing images and then being drawn into it then maybe it would have been bigger in some ways but I by think- 2014 most people have smartphones right? mm-hmm. I think during Occupy, Facebook was a lot big, a lot bigger of a deal. Yeah, there would, you'd, have, you'd see these posts That's that were true. like, "Attention, everyone! Today, blah 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 blah," and they'd be shared all over the place. Um, I, maybe it's just because of COVID. I feel like you don't see that on Facebook anymore. Um, Twitter, I guess, would be the place. Instagram, but like Twitter is so fleeting. It's like if you don't see the post, yeah. you know. Um, right. I do think in terms of like state surveillance and all that, you know, these programs like Telegram. Or I forget, you know, all the all the all the other ones like not um, the more secure ones, not WhatsApp, but Signal. Yeah, Signal. Signal. All that stuff emerged in response to the fears of surveillance, you know, and, and not right. posting the stuff publicly, and um, and it became, I think, used a lot pretty centrally for activists um, in different movements, like in Hong Kong, in the last few years. So I think you're not going to see a lot of like Twitter, like like Twitter and Facebook are mostly like 
social activist advertisements you know it's like people producing very manicured posts at this point um and then you just kind of like have to know like the right person be in the right networks to like actually learn about there's there's something happening today there's you know here's a google doc sheet to sign up or something like that um yeah i think internationally the jury's out a little bit more right like so for example in korea like those were driven those big protests against uh and were pretty driven by social media um like cacao talk or yeah cacao talk or even i think even like twitter right or okay even, like more traditional american social media but the difference there obviously is that like that's like you're talking about one city basically you know yeah. right like very well connected transit wise everyone could get down to the place where the protests were happening. It's pretty easy. Um, and uh, like we've talked about this before, but that's a population that's basically raised to protest from <laughs> the age that they're 13. They could start going to protest. You know, it's like, I don't know. It, here it's like, you know, smoking cigarettes. I guess no one smokes cigarettes anymore. It's like having your first beer or something, you know? It's like, it's just part, such part it's of it. embedded in people's history. Right. Like all you do is protest there. It, it sounds like, you know, sometimes you think about, or you hear from at least people, my, my parents and Tammy's parents generation. <laughs> it's basically, that's all they do. And so that's very, I think that is different, but I do think that there is an accelerant factor to that. Right. Yeah. Um, it's not like 15 people like, you know, in Korea protesting like some new development. Right. Uh, which is, you know, half of this. Right. But um, it's a million people and that's, that's, yeah, that's different. Protesting uh, a variety of things, right? Um, including the fact that you know the shaman's daughter got into you what? Like, was that the that was like the central? That was like the kicking <laughs> off part, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like a college admission scandal, <laughs> more or less. But then it metastasized into a lot of other things. But um, yeah, it's it's interesting to think about because I don't know the answer to it either. You know, and certainly somebody who went to a lot of protests, studied a lot of, uh, reported on a lot of protests. I'm not sure what the legacy of that, of big social media protests yeah. is either. I mean, on balance, of... it has to be positive, right? Like you can't, Oh, for sure. if you try to yeah. organize something without social media now, like you can't. Right. Yeah. Um, right. You know, more to... people is always better, you know? So you can think of it that way. Now, if you think about it, did we maximize the amount that those people could do then no yeah sure know, but yeah. like right you know who thinks that way other than like mckinsey consultants and stuff <laughs> like that, you know? i think during the pandemic with mutual aid groups forming that's like the most occupy like activity since occupy because they these are like place-based yeah. like or- organisms with fairly traditional organizing structures and um you know you know remember how we used to always say like occupy is prefigurative you know, you're modeling a society that you want, sort of. Like, that is what I think the small mutual aid groups right now are trying to do. And it's different than a kind of flash mob protest because there's a sustained right. relationship and people are always talking about, like, well, what does this mean? What do we want to get to? You know, so mm-hmm. I think that that is the kind of, that's like a very good kind of anarchism, I think, that a lot of people right now are practicing without maybe labeling it that. Yeah. Um. Okay. Andy, is there anything else you want to talk about with this? Um, I'm looking at our sheet um, to talk about strike debt, arts and labor, unionization of restaurant workers. I imagine these are Tammy's notes. 
Then you say you were, wait, what was the thing we brought up and you said we'll get back to that eventually at the end of the conversation? Oh, the birth of magazines, left magazines. Oh, yeah, left magazines. That's also, yeah. Another product Tammy's. that we <laughs> was Occupy Jack- was great for Tammy. Was Jack- <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. Was Jacobin around? I don't think it was around yet. No, it was not around. Yeah. So it's like, but I would think of Jacobin as like the byproduct of Occupy. It's like Jacobin, New Inquiry. The birth child. Oh, right. New Inquiry. Uh, N plus one really got going a lot more, it seemed. They, they issued N plus one published the Occupy newspaper, I think. They did. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, so there was, there was, yeah, again, I think like, because people were like together thinking, trying to process stuff yeah, new, and new, a lot of them were elites, there was like publishing arm of this. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> right. New entry definitely was uh, occupied grad students, basically. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, pretty much. Yeah. Coming together. I mean, what, a, what a lot of the, um, you know, 2008 crisis was about into leading into occupy was this, realization and rage that even educated middle-class people are uh, in debt and this economic system is not built to help them buy houses, you know, or go to four-year colleges without finishing in debt. So, you know, this has led to obviously like in a predictable way, like arguments that this isn't really a working class protest. It's like a protest for the bourgeoisie and the middle class and so on. And that, and that kind of, it takes on that character in terms of like the culture of Occupy and the kind of like, you know, publishing a lot of think pieces about it. On the other hand, I, I would also say, like, from a strictly economic perspective, like these people, they might have like better college, more college degrees than like workers 200 years ago, but they still kind of occupy the same position um, yeah. within the economic, you know, social relations of, you know, being indebted to capital and and feeling its pressures. But you know, this is like this is what the whole Bernie. Again, we keep going back to this, but like this is what the fight has been over the yeah. last few, four or five years. Um, how how do you bridge bridge that gap? I guess between I don't know, like the upper proletariats and the lower class proletariats, <laughs> you know, or like the the college educated versus the non college educated as the big as the big divide. Uh, I don't know, but um, I do think oh wait oh wait into occupy was this. I think it was radicalizing, especially for the middle class. Um, hmm. Right. Yeah. Which I is good. Know. Really? But what about also all the people who, I mean, because who had their homes taken away, that was also a lot of lower middle class people or even very working class people yeah. because of this fraudulent structure of the mortgage schemes had bought into this. Yeah. And especially black families. Yeah. Black right. and Latino a of, families. A lot of and Korean families too. A lot of people. It was pretty broad. And so I think like, like, like thinking about, you know, all those home foreclosure occupations. Yeah. Like there was also a kind of occupation strategy related to the fact that the Obama administration didn't do anything for these people. Right. So right. yes, the middle class identified that, but so did the, so did right. people who weren't middle class. Well, I think if you're a homeowner, probably been a, I, I mean, I guess, I guess maybe it's semantic, but, but then anyway, my, my, I'm starting to be more and more convinced by Barbara Ehrenreich's argument and fear of falling that basically working class is like, you know, what people make up when they, need to divide the middle <laughs> class you know that everyone's like, what, what about these people you know right. or the other way right yeah. and then and then you're always like okay but who are those people right right um and then it becomes a little bit more they, there's this sort of like mythic person that comes to stand in for all of that That's now true. i'm not saying Tammy, that you're saying that i do think that that the effects of that 
the people at Occupy were protesting were certainly, uh, it was, you know, it was a 99%, right? Um, and uh, But it's such a I broad category. It, I actually you know? do think it's more, reason- like, that's one thing that I wish was still around, which is that that phrase, like, we are the 99% is, like, extremely powerful, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it does not separate the people who are middle class from the people who are working class yeah, in any sort of way. That's true. And it's just like, well, we're all suffering under this, right? And one of the things that I continually think about, which is just that, like, yeah, Andy, like in 2008, there, after 2008 to 2011, there was a real sense of precarity amongst, like, people who thought that they were entitled to a better life. Like, so young people graduating from elite colleges, for example, who, you know, expected to go straight into high-paying jobs were completely unemployed, right? Um, and... I don't know. It it just seems like the economy is much better now, you know, but mm. I don't think that that precarity is no, I mean, in, just in terms of like the stock market is higher. Oh. I don't think that that precarity is, <laughs> no, Jones is back. Just, okay. that's what I mean. Like, I, I, I think that, that the markers, of the economy are better and they, we certainly don't have the unemployment foreclosure rates that we had in 2008, but, um, you know, the sense of precarity is not gone. If anything, right. it's in, intensified. Right. That, young middle-class people feel much, much more out of the loop. I mean, with these Yimby dudes, like that's, you know, sorry to bring it back to housing, but you know, like these Yimby guys are very unpleasant, you know? Mm -hmm. And I agree with a lot of their critique, but it's like, you know, you, you listen to them and you're like, okay, like you guys are basically creating like a social justice movement centered around letting developers build more middle-class housing, right? Like it's like, there's probably more important causes in the world. But at the same time, I feel very sympathetic <laughs> towards them. A, well, mostly because I agree that there should be more middle class housing and they should build it. But B, like they do feel a lot of precarity about it. You know, um, it's not just dudes in San Francisco who are like, "Why can't I afford a three bedroom instead of a two bedroom?" You know, like I'm rich. Like it's not just that, right? It, yeah. it really is people who, like, I don't want to work a hundred hours a week so that I can, um, so that I can afford living in the city that I've lived in for my entire adult life. There needs to be more housing options. And, you know, like if we don't do this, then I'm going to be priced out along with all of my friends. Like that's a real sense of precarity. Right. And these are not, these are not poor people, right. That critique is correct, you know, but they're also not, you know, they're not running, they don't have tens of millions of dollars either. And I don't know. I do think that that sense of precarity is is yeah. still there and spreading amongst the middle class. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess to I think I think that's the, the point you made, Tammy, is a good one. I, I guess just in terms of theorizing why would there be an outburst in 2011 versus before, mm-hmm. it would be that you know I'm not like the obviously the people who are kind of the most exploited and the most um, impoverished, they didn't suffer or they didn't they didn't do well, but it's more that new groups of people are also suffering in 08 um, that I assume, and that, that that's what made the difference. And that led to this huge spark um, because there was, I think a real complacency around economic issues in the two thousands mm-hmm. where it was like pe- basically people, really people like people like Henwood, you know, would be like the only few people who would say we need more class analysis, um, which, you know, I'll admit I, I, at the time I was like trying to figure out how the world worked. And I always kind of thought like, the class analysis people were like in one corner, you know, and then, mm-hmm. and, and then there's all these like cultural issues we also have to pay attention to yeah, and so yeah. on. And then later on, I'm like, maybe the class analysis people were like right all along and they should have been, you know, given more of a center stage in the, you know, earlier on. 
Yeah, I'm writing this. Uh, I, I've been doing a lot of research for the newsletter about suburbs, you know, and it's interesting. I think that's going to be the next place where a lot of these conversations should happen, just because like, I think cities are very difficult right now to come up with any sort of interesting class analysis because like people are either really rich or really poor, you know? Um, but in the suburbs, you really do have a lot of middle-class people, but suburbs in general are getting all poor, you know, right. like the yeah. suburbanization and, of poverty. Thing. Right, right, right. That stuff is <laughs> fascinating and it's almost never discussed, you know, like, or at least it's like sort of a secondary issue, even though most people live in the suburbs and, um, you know, like the biggest movement of people in the United States, I believe, is like Latino people moving to the suburbs, right? So all those, <laughs> all the suburbs are basically much browner than they were before. Yeah. And then the people in the suburbs are just like, or, you know, the educators in the suburbs are just kind of like, uh, we don't have enough uh, ELL teachers to, to right, right now. Wow, yeah. <laughs> and then, so like, um, but it is an interesting place because it's just like the other thing that the people in the suburbs are on prepared to deal with including some of the people who have become poor while living in the suburbs is poverty right yeah. poor people and so yeah. um i don't know maybe that'll be the next place where these types of things what, why are is there you know why is like for instance the movement of um latino people into the suburbs is it the cities themselves are pushing people into the suburbs yeah i think a lot of it is um housing prices yeah right yeah. Uh, I think maybe some, uh, you know, with any immigrant population, right? And some of these aren't even immigrant populations. They're people like second, third generation yeah. Latino families. A lot of it is you have an anchor somewhere, right? And everybody moves to that place, yeah. right? Like why do, right. why is there a large African population in Lewiston, Maine? Well, because, you know, I think there was two families there at some point, right? A refugee family. <laughs> um, and then, you know, other places it's because they have broad, programs meant to help people like so buffalo right now is you know becoming like this incredibly diverse city because they're replacing their outgoing population with refugees and so a lot of those refugees end up in the suburbs right yeah. and then you have these suburbs being like oh, we don't know right but in terms of the class thing what happens is that like uh immigrants tend to be poor right and so then you have like real sort of class divides between like people who aren't actually that wealthy in these middle class suburbs and then like uh yeah and people coming in but i don't know i think cities it's very hard to do any sort of meaningful class so analysis right now on the weekends we often go to cherry hill just to uh which is like the jersey where city where the h mart is, the h -Mart is. There's, a, <laughs> there's a gym there there's the costco etc and i was thinking this weekend like cherry hill every space we go to in cherry hill feels more diverse and cosmopolitan than a lot of philadelphia itself. oh yeah for sure right like center yeah. city the sort of financial district of philly you know yeah then you go to cherry hill and there's just like all these sorts of international <laughs> it's all immigrants. white black latino families you know yeah uh, I was like, that's, yeah, like to get a dose of diversity in Philadelphia, you have to go to the suburbs. Right. Yeah. Here too. Fremont, California, you know, like, which is uh, down below south, below, below south of Oakland. <laughs> Underneath. <laughs> um, Underneath the ground. Yeah. Or Castro Valley. My wife and I and kid went to Castro Valley to go uh, kayaking and, um, the park in Castro Valley is the most diverse place I've ever seen in my life. It's wow. crazy. 
it's like black people, Latino yeah, people, I Indian mean, people, Asian people, Filipino, you know, and Filipinos are Asian, but you know, East Asian people, <laughs> Filipino people. Um, you know, like it is, my wife even said it, my wife was like, and also like some old white people, you know, and I was like, it's the most diverse place I've ever seen in my life. I was like, I know it's crazy. And it's like this beautiful park on a reservoir. And it's just, it's, it's true that these suburbs are the places of like great diversity right now. And, um, you know, if you go around Oakland, what, what's in Oakland? It, well, Oakland has a, a shrinking black population and it has a wealthy white population. Yeah. And it has some Latino people. And that's about it, you know, like some Asians, I guess, you know, um, San Francisco, like what's in San Francisco? Well, you have a Latino population, right? You have a tiny black population and then you have a lot of rich white people um, and then some poor white people. And that's about it. You know, like it's very different in the suburbs. So it's much more. Yeah. Different. Yeah. And I think people like, uh, like McGillis, like I was thinking about his Amazon book, like he's also these kind of like reporters who are and academics who are really focused on like geography are thinking about how a lot of the working class needs to be in the suburbs because of the structure of the yeah. jobs that they work. Right. right so right. like Amazon warehouses and stuff, they're always like right. on the edge of cities, but not quite in cities and you can't afford to live in a city anyway. So you might yeah. as well build a community that's close to your work. Yeah. And then the big box stores can also be sited there in a way they can't in the city. True. And so you can live near more affordable shopping. Like there's a whole, you know, complex of reasons why people will orient themselves there. It's sad. So like by moving to the city actually left, the space of like a lot of diversity <laughs> you know <laughs> right right good, no good it is food. true like it, it's it's just so true it's just so fundamentally true here in the bay area that if you want to be around a lot of different people then you should move to the suburbs like vallejo for example yeah you know? vallejo is yeah, that's like, wild. like you should not be you know in oakland like oakland, <laughs> you'll see you know i don't know i yeah, think I new york is still different to, but it's yeah, very neighborhood specific yeah, New York is different because you still yeah, have like Russians like... and, you know. <laughs> but you also have like, you know, yeah. Fort other Lee types in Georgians. <laughs> yeah, but Fort Lee is not diverse. It's just sure. Asian. Sure. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> but Fort Lee is not, Fort Lee is just Korean. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. like the least, it's like a monoculture. It's like two Chinese Jackson, restaurants. Jackson Heights is still extremely diverse. I guess right. I would just Jackson say that, Heights that like Castro Valley and like, uh, and, and, Fremont feel much more like Jackson Heights than than Oakland does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't that mean to sense. bag on Oakland. I love Oakland, so um, <laughs> it's just you know anyone who lives in Oakland will agree that that's true, unless they're delusional in some sort of way. All right, second topic. Let's do this one quickly. Okay. Um, there was uh, I don't. This hasn't gotten that much attention, but it was interesting to me, and I think I, there's a good reason it didn't get that much attention because it's not really super newsy, but um, it is an interesting data point. Let's put it, it that way, which is that in the recall election, um, they looked at Orange County, right, and they were comparing what had happened in Orange County compared to the 2020 election, the presidential election, and what they found was that the biggest swing of voters seemed to be within. Orange County in the Westminster area or like a heavily Vietnamese population area, right? Mm -hmm. And they were wondering what what to make of this, right? So the tweet, most of this stemmed from a tweet from this guy, Vance Ulrich. And if someone else tweeted it, then I apologize. But, you know, like it, it, our power to drive your Twitter followers is very low. All right. Um, with all in-person votes now counted, the swing in Orange County's ethnic community is even more stark. This is Vance Ulrich. Um, Majority Vietnamese precinct swung an average of 30%, which is a lot 
from Trump in 2020 to no on the recall. Precincts with significant Korean-American voters swing, swung an average of 7, 7%, which could mean a few things, right? I mean, there are two things to talk about here. First is like, what's going on? And then secondly, you know, like, does this have any sort of electoral possibilities, yeah. right? Because uh, there are two Korean women elected to the U.S. Congress from Orange County who are quite right wing. Right? Yeah. Both uh, Republicans. Yeah. Right. Very yeah. Republican. They're not. They're like, they're like <laughs> right wing <laughs> Republicans. <laughs> um, they're not like, you know, they're like not like. Yeah, they're not like, you know, they're not kind of like apologetic Nikki Haley types or like, you know, apologetic John Kasich types or whatever. Not that Nikki Haley is that. I was going to say, they're also extreme like, now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> or whatever. You know, let's think of them. They're not Mitt Romney, right, yeah. from 10 years ago or whatever. Yeah. Um, they're not being like, hey, if we can work together, you know, I'm a businessman. I can get it together, you know, like, um, no, like <laughs> Young Kim and Michelle still not that. Um, all right. So. What do we think happened? Does this matter? Like my first inclination is to just be like, well, I don't know, you know, like, um, <laughs> but then it does seem like it's a big swing, right? Like, and I don't know if like Trump and no on the recall is the same thing. That's you know? what I was going to ask because that, right. okay. So at the same time that this article, that this analysis came out, it also seems like we have more accurate exit polling from the 2020 elections. And we saw right. that Vietnamese people went super Trump. Right. In 2020, more than in 16. Right. So if we read that together with the recall, does it paint a picture of like Vietnamese people becoming like way more Republican because of China? I mean, but but my but my initial question definitely was that one, Jay, which is just like, is this apples and apples? Because uh, the re the structure of the recall vote was so weird. Andy, what do you think? Oh, I guess you're not in California. I'm not a recall guy. Authority. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um I think that uh, I don't think they're apples to apples, but I don't think they're necessarily completely unrelated either. Right. Like, I think one can make an argument that perhaps there was some regression towards the, and that would be normal. Right. So mm -hmm. my sense would just be that this extreme swing right um, to Trump in these areas was always going to regress some. Right. And in a in a uh, election where the other guy is Larry Elder, basically, yeah. and I don't I don't and the other and. And Gavin Newsom is like annoying or whatever, but like, you know, it's not like, you know, some sort of socialist that's screaming to like, you know, uh, nationalize everything or statewise everything, state eyes. But the, the, I, I don't, I think that it's a little bit different in that sort of way. Right. Okay. Now, the one thing I will say, and I, I, I do think it's just kind of like at some point this is going to always swing back because like, you know, everything that goes one way is going to at some point swing back. But um, I don't know. I think the timing, there's some theories about it out there that I read and some of them were interesting. So one of them is like, look, uh, the Vietnamese people who are uh, in Orange County, like may, they, maybe they really didn't like the way that lockdowns were handled by the uh, GOP people there, right? Like maybe they were more cautious about the pandemic. Maybe they're, you know, more mask wearing than... The public maybe there's something about sort of the GOP response to pandemic response that turned off these voters, right? Eh, I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, there was a reporting on um, how Newsom's comment that COVID started in a nail salon, right, would really right. upset that industry and also was like deeply offensive or you know seen as racist. Um, but you know that's like anecdotal reporting. Right. I don't know. I mean. 
Tell me what do you but think? But then they bounced. So they were they were against Newsom, but then they kind of potentially bounced back because his handling overall was okay. Right. That, that maybe thing, they know? liked his handling of That's the thing. Because it's, right. I mean, I think a lot of Vietnamese shop owners were obviously mad about that remark linking COVID to nail salons, which they own, but also, and, and they lost a ton of money because of the lockdown. Right. But at the same time, like Californians didn't. I mean, they, there could have been a lot more deaths. So I think right. there is some <laughs> realization of that during this Delta period, maybe. I, yeah. Yeah. Cause it's not like at, at the same time, it's weird because it's like that, but it's not like the 2020 election happened before the pandemic. Right. Right. So, right. It's, and it's not like people weren't screaming all the stuff they were screaming yeah. during the election. If anything, they were screaming it more. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, it seems, so I just, you know, started looking at this stuff for the first time today. So, but just like reading a few articles, it seems like the real story, a potential real story version of telling the real story is that 2016 was the outlier uh, in terms of strong support for Hillary over Trump. But historically, if you look at McCain to Romney, skip over Trump 2016, go to Trump or 2020, there's this very predictable generational transition from first or older generation Vietnamese Immigrants who are anti-communist and are just like naturally aligned with the Republican Party, gradually mm-hmm. ceding ground to the younger um, Vietnamese Americans who kind of identify more with like Asian American politics, which is you know, anti-racist, pro-Democrat party. And so if 2016, you just kind of take 2016 out of the equation because like t- Trump in 2016 was kind of crazy, right? And it was like really hard <laughs> for people to like reliably vote for. Um there's there does seem to be like a pretty steady progression towards um, the democratification of 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 this of this um, of this voting block. It seems, yeah, that you know? population. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Maybe. I mean, I would be curious to see what what's going to happen in the midterms. I think that's much more of a you know reasonable barometer than this like weird election that um, you know. Was yeah, actually kind of hard to vote for, and... but then so few people vote in midterms. But yeah, yeah, it'll it'll show something. I mean, it seems like the Democratic Party now is going to try to do a lot more outreach to the Vietnamese. Yeah. Oh, I know. Well, they can <laughs> smell it. You know, they, yeah. Yeah, we can get rid of uh, we can get rid of Michelle Steele and Young, right? Like, or the Korean community as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that I actually think that the Democrats are probably going to do a better job in general, just because they were getting so crushed about it. You know, um, after twenty twenty. And uh, I think that, you know, people are going to use the models of these campaigns in Texas and in California and and do more outreach. Now, it could just be that, you know, it could be that the Democrats did a better job and like uh, actually talking to people in those communities about the recall election than the Republicans did. Right. And I think this was not that difficult of a choice. Right. Like the like the no never really had a chance. You know, mm-hmm. like I know that at some it point seems it was so like scary. Whole, really? Oh, my, I was never worried. <laughs> I mean, I'm not there, but I was just like, oh, it was I, weird. Was just never worried. I think I had like one thought where I was just like, well, what if nobody, everybody, what if the only people who vote are the people who think who want no, you know? And then I was like, no, no, no. Like, it's, you know, like that Larry Elder, like basically saying that he's going to ban all the mask mandates and stuff like that. Like, that's, yeah. like there's no way that people are going to in California, that, yeah. you know, couldn't they run a Vietnamese American in the OC? Maybe they could just steal all the votes that way. 
Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I imagine identity politics cool. pretty powerful in that community, right? Just because are the, there Vietnamese uh, people in Congress? I think so. Was it's a this... lot of Koreans. Oh, I guess I was thinking about Hua's reporting, but I guess that was on state races. Yeah. Right, right. I'm trying to think. I can't think of one, but... Are there Chinese people? In Congress? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh, Grace Mang. Um, shit. <laughs> We're really bad at Americans. <laughs> Grace Mang. <laughs> uh, I know all the Koreans. Ron Kim. Uh, but that's uh, state, right? That's state. But uh, Andy Kim, state. do you mean? Andy in Kim, New Jersey. In New Jersey. Yeah, right. In Cherry Hill. Yeah. yeah. Michelle yeah, Steele. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Young Kim and um, that woman in yeah, in Olympia, From Washington, is that right? Washington yeah, State, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good. This is amazing. That's <laughs> uh, just naming Asian. It's like pop quiz. Okay. <laughs> I, w- I was surprised, oh you gosh. know, reading about this, how strongly A, Vietnam, the country, but also Vietnamese Americans, um, they are like, uh, there's like these polls, like among all the Asians, they hate China the most. I know. And, right. and so like Trump's yeah. Wuhan virus thing actually my as an as a, Helps, as a popular explanation right. yeah for i learned that through our so through our through our uh podcast discord where there is a long conversation in the early days of the Discord about vietnamese about americans in particular yeah in china yeah. and the china virus yeah. <laughs> yeah. wow that's so I, interesting i was talking know. about how like it's their family members just laughing about like the wuhan virus stuff and the china virus oh and they thought it was so funny you know and i was like yeah you know it's like how a lot of koreans would if it was like a Japanese Japan virus, you know, they're like, listen, I know that in some ways it's going to blow back on me, but you know, I, I have my priorities. <laughs> um, okay. Um, I think that's enough on this topic because I'm just like, well, I don't know. Like, I feel like we should talk for. about it because it's an interesting data point. And it also yeah. goes against some of the stuff we've said on this podcast. I want us to be intellectually honest, you know, me mm. specifically. Um, <laughs> and it definitely has made me rethink in some ways whether or not the rightward trend for Asian Americans will actually happen or if what Andy said is going to happen, which is yeah. that like basically the whole voting block is going to be overtaken by well-educated, you know, upwardly mobile people who are always going to identify with the Democrat Party over the Republican Party, right? Or whether or not this, like, sort of morass of uh, first-generation immigrants who are really mad about schooling and stuff like that are going to sort of become the major political force. I would say there's more of the former than the latter, but I would say that the latter is much more politically well-organized, as is always true with the right. Well, yeah, time is on the side of the young, but it's interesting that Larry Elder made the same points that you write about, Jay, which is that Larry Elder was trying to win the Vietnamese vote by talking about affirmative action. Oh, yeah. And by talking about um, anti-Asian attacks. Um, Oh, no, he did? He was emphasizing that they were committed by black people (laughs) in order to curry favor (laughs) with the Asians. Larry Elder is wild. I I just saw these headlines about, yeah, he's a wild character. Oh my god! He seems yeah. like yeah. Anyway, I did He's not like write that. I did not write that stuff, suggesting <laughs> that, that that was a good thing. I wrote that stuff as a fear right, right. that somebody would do that. Now I am happy that to it didn't clarify. seem to work. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> great. I would much rather be wrong about that than right about I it. I guess you, you know? protect. You predicted the demagoguery, though. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. someone else is going to try. Yeah, someone He's will not definitely the last one, try. You know, someone will try. Yeah, um, like the anti-China stuff. Was... 
Sorry. I wonder if yeah. Larry Elder was white that if, if if it would have worked. Oh my god. I know. That was the other Remember thing that's that? kind of unstated. Like would Vietnamese right. voters want to vote for yeah. a black candidate? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look. Yeah. Um, I also think look, to be fair, and Tammy, you can back me up here. I also think that probably had something to do with the Korean vote. Probably. Too. Yeah. yeah. So um Okay. Plain old Asian racism. <laughs> right, right. That's what we're Across talking about. To be clear, is that like you know, it's hard to it's hard for a black candidate of any political background to get too much traction in those communities. All right. Thank you for listening to our show. Is there anything else you guys want to talk about? Well, we could also tie this you know, to Tammy. What's going to talk about? Um, we were thinking. Her, yeah. I don't know if this feel good corner. Talk? It's probably feel bad corner. Tammy's sad news oh, corner about Vietnam. Yes, we haven't done that in a while. Speaking of Vietnam. <laughs> Um, Tammy, we are bringing back our favorite segment of the show, which is our only segment of the show <laughs> that we're doing or currently, other than Washu's uh, come and hang out exactly. on the show. He hasn't done that in a while. We should talk to him. Um, okay, Tammy. Yeah, uh, well, I was just going to ask you what guys. Is your, what, is your, what is your thing that everyone should know about this week? So connected to our analysis of Vietnamese American voters, I thought we would talk a little bit about what's going on with COVID in Vietnam because it's getting out of control there. And this is surprising because I think early on in the podcast, we were talking about how Vietnam was one of the big success stories, Definitely. along with Taiwan, New Zealand, you know, it was doing really well, super low levels of transmission. That all changed starting in about July. And now Vietnam just has absolute runaway cases of Delta. So it used to be like there were 3,000 cases and now there are 700,000 cases. Uh, total? Really? Um, Whoa. Yeah, it's wild. Point. Yeah. And there's been now... 17,000 deaths and wow. you know when we started the podcast they were like double digit deaths right yeah right so you know i think it's it's an interesting thing to you know think about like why is this i've read some analysis basically laying out there was maybe a little bit of government complacency because for whatever reason they were lucky you know and then they sort of sat back on their laurels right. um there's a little bit having to do with the animosity towards China affecting their willingness to receive Chinese vaccines, which I found fascinating. This is true of all it, Asian countries, by the way. Which is true. Yeah. The Vietnamese uh, president, there was um, an appointment by their party, party Congress earlier this year, is right now in Cuba because they've made an agreement with Cuba to get some of the Cuban vaccines. Mm. So there's a bunch of different vaccines that they're now trying to get from all of these different Mm-hmm. countries because they're feeling quite desperate but the vaccination rates are incredibly low so so did they yeah do they sorry. have i can say anecdotally my family in taiwan mm-hmm. they their their situation they describe it as taiwan like they bought the vaccines they're just not getting them you know they mm-hmm. bought they, they bought them from pfizer or moderna <clears throat> so i wonder if vietnam is in the same situation like yeah. i assume they don't have the vaccines that's and that's the problem right yeah so I think, yeah, in, in the Vietnamese case, it's it's less that, it's that there was some delay in trying to acquire them. And then it yeah. was already that the global supply chains were all messed up around vaccines. Yeah. That's the criticism um, in Taiwan, so. that they got complacent and they didn't order them in time. Exactly. Because I think Delta, before Delta, there was this assumption in places like New Zealand and Taiwan that they'll just get rid of COVID and then they'll, they'll be, that'll be it. But now yeah, that right. totally. we can't get rid of it, it seems like that's the consensus now that kind of upends all the plans of these countries that we're just going to wait it out because mm-hmm. now they're the most exposed, you know? Um, right. Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of, it's very uh, unsettling to think about. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, I don't have any particular insight into this, but I'd be curious, you know, it's just something I think for us to be aware of and to keep an eye out on. And I think also it's, 
um, you know, it's, I think Vietnam, Vietnam's posture towards China and China's posture toward Vietnam is surprising because I think in the U.S., you know, given our foreign policy, we would make certain assumptions around like communist countries having certain alliances and stuff. And that's certainly not the case here. And it's really affecting people's lives. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like uh, for a lot of the, a lot of these countries that are in the quote unquote periphery, they feel like, you know, Chinese capital is the more than the U.S. U.S. capital, right, as the force of imperialism in their countries. Right. So um, that is surprising that I, I didn't realize the animosity was that strong. I know. Yeah. So that's it for me. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. You know, like, it's like one of those correspondence spots in a news. You know. Yeah. That's it for time. To, Signing that, up. And then we're Trisha back to the that, so like, Thank you. Thanks, <laughs> yeah. uh, Tammy Kim, reporting from. Brooklyn. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right, that's all the time we have. Thank you for listening to our show. Um, you can email us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to uh, subs- <laughs> goodbye.substack.com and you will have the option there to subscribe for $5 a month. We appreciate all our subscribers. Um, that will give you access to our Discord server. Still filled with lively conversation and um, fantasy <laughs> basketball. I forgot to sign up. Oh, yeah. When's our, when's our draft? The draft is this week. Friday. Okay. You got to create uh, a big board. Yeah. Uh, lots of stuff like that. <laughs> um, and, and you can, yeah, you'll be helping show keeping it. You'll be helping keep the show on air. <laughs> And uh, is there anything else? Oh, you can find us on Twitter at TTS. We should do a pledge drive like one, one, one month. <laughs> yeah. Sing and dance. <laughs> Just have all our Discord listeners take pledges from everyone. Thank you so much for 